0: So we're going to get started today. I am your moderator and your speaker, uh, or one of your two speakers. I'm Max Isle, and I am, uh, study sociology and have been active in the Palestine movement and also in the environmental movement. Probably most of you know Kelly, who founded Cooperation Jackson, and has been very active speaking out about issues involving ecology, the Green New Deal, and the just transition. So I'm going to speak a little bit about the general context, about why we are discussing the Green New Deal in the first place, some of the forces at play, and how we might approach it as independent leftists. And then Callie is going to offer a different interpretation of some, of the, some similar topics and some of the different topics. So first is context. Why are we discussing the Green New Deal? This is not, I think, solely due to Ocasio-Cortez raising the issue. If you look at the climate reports, they have been raising the alarm not only about the severity of the climate crisis and the broader ecological crisis within which it is embedded, but also they have been raising the issue that you actually need a structural transformation of the economic system, which doesn't mean a structural transformation towards uh, more egalitarian or non-hierarchical social system or what people in the past and present understand as communism or socialism. It just means that people understand that a system based on limitless extraction is physically destroying the environment, and that actually imperils everybody, including the very wealthy. So there's a much broader context within which a conversation about the Green New Deal is able to appeal to a wide segment of the U.S. and indeed the world population. Right? I mean, it's worth keeping in mind that the first discussion of the Green New Deal came from Thomas Friedman, who has a very different vision of society than probably most of the people in this room, right? He actually doesn't think people in the Middle East should have societies. They should be kind of like destroyed wastelands. So we need to keep in mind that this is an idea that does not contain a specific politics. It's in fact an idea that represents a battleground, as does the entire environmental crisis writ large. So this, is, this has to be the starting point for understanding why we're discussing it and why there's so many distinct forces at play who are trying to put their brand on the Green New Deal and structure the Green New Deal in the way that they think will best represent their interests and constitute a new society. This brings us to the question of the Green New Deal as a battlefield. Is the Green New Deal, is it policy or is it politics? So Of course, the Ocasio-Cortez plan suddenly put in place a lot of ideas for clean transition, upgrading of renewables, and a new industrial strategy. Uh, Talked somewhat less, or not at all, about the global south. Did talk about frontline communities, but in what I would argue are very deliberately vague ways. Nevertheless, this did do a good service in suddenly propelling the issue of climate change into the mainstream of both elite discussion and also popular discussion. So there is a mounting urgency about the issue of climate change, which everyone, of course, I think both appreciates and those who don't appreciate need to appreciate because climate change is pretty much a fait accompli. Like it's already destroying everything. You know, you can read in the paper today that Chennai is actually out of water because of a historic drought. Four years ago, it was actually suffering historic floods. And this is because everything is out of kilter, because the monsoons came too intensely and there wasn't an ability to absorb the water, and now the monsoons are too late. And so the historic patterns that allow some form of civilization in places like the global south are actually collapsing right now. Not yesterday, and they aren't collapsing in 10 years with this 10-year horizon that's put in place for talking about climate change. No. Already, the disaster is hitting the global south today. Now... There's a lot of forces that are putting a lot of proposals into place, So you can see a wide range of things, ranging from kind of the most right-wing to the most left-wing. So you see, for example, there's think tanks in Australia called the Breakthrough Institute. Any institute called Breakthrough should set off an alarm bell because they're all funded by the same people, and what they want to do is break the system and put in place a new one. They are saying that there needs to be an arrangement between the national security state, businesses and what they call communities, in order to put in place a system, a more sustainable system of economic production and consumption. Right? So they are well aware of it because Australia is very close to Southeast and South Asia, and they're going to have to deal with floods of immigration that they are incapable structurally of dealing with. So they're like, okay, we need to stabilize the system in order so that our system of accumulation here in Australia can continue. And they're willing to use the national security state to do so. Right? <coughs> so this is basically an argument for a form of fascism. You have more kind of conventional, what are seem conventional arguments from people like Elizabeth Warren. Elizabeth Warren is like, OK, we can use the opportunity of the Green New Deal to set in place a new system of clean tech export. So basically what she wants to do is relaunch a new industrial revolution based on clean tech and based on the advantages the U.S. would supposedly have to export clean tech technology to Europe and also especially the global south. So this is basically continuing capitalist imperious industrial supremacy based on a new form of technology that hopefully won't destroy the climate as much as uh, the current system is doing. That's another option, the Warren option. Then there are the options coming from Ocasio-Cortez. Now, what's worth keeping in mind is that actually, you know, she put out the initial resolutions in February and it's already basically July, there's still no details about that. And so we don't know about it, which doesn't actually... I don't think that means we should think of it as a blank slate upon which we can put whatever we want. There was a decision, clearly, to not put out more details yet. Why that decision was made, we really don't know yet. But, you know, this isn't happening by clumsiness. We can also consider that the new consensus, which is actually the think tank that designed the idea of the Green New Deal, what they said is that they want to put in place a governing domestic agenda and to see the elephant hole. So basically, it's somewhat similar to what uh, Elizabeth Warren said. They want to reconstruct the U.S. economic system and put in place basically what I think would argue is a new system of hierarchy. Okay, so this brings us to the third question, which is, I think, a very important question for us in this room, which is how we think of the Green New Deal and how we can think of it on independent terms. So is the Green New Deal something that politicians and whatever academics they want to purchase come up with, craft, and then we want to lobby them to make it a little better, to include a few more frontline communities in the United States, to maybe not hit India and North Africa quite as hard, so that some of the clean tech becomes uh, grants instead of sales? Is that the kind of system we wish to aspire to? Is it a system in which we want to basically lobby the existing forces to put in place a somewhat better Green New Deal than they would put in of their own accord? That is one option, right? And that is the option that is kind of the historic approach of lobbying the Democratic Party for some kind of measure of inclusion within their policy agenda. Another idea, of course, is which I think is the idea I advocate, is to actually say, okay, the Green New Deal is enormously popular. 70% of the U.S. population wants a Green New Deal, and that is something we should definitely get behind. Not only because the climate crisis is already destroying the planet, but actually because there's a much wider ecological crisis, right? Biodiversity is actually collapsing, and we don't really know what's going to happen when this web of life collapses like when the entire biospheric interactions, when there's no more insects, we don't know how we're going to continue life on this planet, actually, right? It's the, the issue is that severe. The topsoil loss is like 40% or 30% planet-wide over the last 50 years. I mean, there's a widespread ecological crisis. So what I think is better is to think, okay, the idea of the Green New Deal is very popular, but what we need is to put our forces into play to figure out what those forces are, of course, and put them into play and say we reject the technocratic top-down models of a Green New Deal. And what we want to put in place, again, is a People's New Deal. And this is exactly what the Red Nation recently did. They said, okay, we want a Red Deal, and they put in place a certain set of policies that are much more radical than anything you hear coming out of, you know, the New Republic or Ocasio-Cortez or New Consensus or Elizabeth Warren or that's on the stage of the Democratic debates, right? And this is a very different policy orientation. It's not because it's not a policy orientation at all. It's a people's orientation based on building autonomous power and then using that, of course, inevitably, too, it's going to influence what politicians say and do. But it doesn't take what politicians say and do and their policy proposals as something that we need to reshape or remold and tinker with. Instead, it says, okay, what are our values? What kind of world do we want? Do we want a world in which most of the world has the right to food, water, air, which are the historic goals of some people, who, uh, or you could say development. Do mo- does most of the world deserve control over their own food systems? Do they deserve sustainable agricultural systems? Do they deserve to have systems in which their food, their agriculture is devoted to feeding the domestic population? Do they deserve their own industrial systems that are sustainable and that don't rely on exploitation and imperialism? And what is our interaction with that? What do we want? What do we want? We want clean cities, and we want... Yesterday, the ozone in New York was... There was an air quality issue. You know, I looked on my phone, and it said that the air quality index was 159. I didn't know what that meant. I mean, maybe I haven't been here in a little while, but... Yeah, yeah, it was very bad. I was, like, going... I took a walk. I could barely breathe afterwards. It's absurd, right? I mean, it's actually... It's actually not a way to uh, structure, uh, social, and this is the richest city and the richest country in the world, and we don't even have clean air on a, on a summer afternoon, right? So it's also about what we want. It's not a question of saying, okay, how can we accommodate everyone else? It's like, how can everyone accommodate one another such that everyone has the right to all of these basic things, including functioning mass transit, good jobs for everybody guaranteed health care, guaranteed clean food that doesn't fill with plastics and chemicals and whatever else they put in place in our sandwiches. So the question is, how can we begin to orient to the Green New Deal in such a way that those interests are the ones that formulate the program, and then that program is what we use to fight for a different kind of future? So with that, I'm going to pass it over to Kelly.
1: I want to come back to this, to this, to this one piece about policy or politics. You know, through my work in cooperation, Jackson, we are we are in a lot of these conversations about you know with with Ocasio and her crew and in different ways and, and folks trying to shape a number of different things. And I can just tell you, you know, on, on the serious side, we're struggling with them to be to take the, the issue serious. And for what for us that means, this can't just be a hook for election mobilization for 2020, which is fundamentally. How it's being used and mobilized, you know, by her little section and wing, however it's emerging as a Democratic Party this week in Franklin, and trying to put up a, a position with some of the forces that we align with, saying it's not just a—it's a matter of consulting with frontline communities or <coughs> getting some dialogue with folks. Like there's a there's a much deeper process that has to be both fought through and thought through <coughs> in the course of the next. I believe the next three to four years, quite honestly, around how do we actually build and extend the concrete work around people building alternative on the ground. And then, you know, I hate to use this word, but there's a particular way of, of kind of scaling up and federating out so that the, the work reinforces itself and it's, then there's a level of both kind of movement building but also protection of the work so it extends and grows out. Because there's a lot of fundamental, you know, as Max was saying, there's a lot of fundamental projects, you know, here in the United States and well beyond of folks who are without waiting for some command or some forces on high who are are actually trying to experiment and build in real time things that are regenerative in nature. But they're not projected, they're really not connected to a great extent, and then fundamentally politically and ideologically not necessarily aligned. So there's kind of a broad... Recognition that we have to do something different but it's not a clear sense of where the difference is, like where are we going with this? Where do we need to go? And we need to have a much deeper conversation about that and I would interject we need to start having a clear articulation around this whole framework around eco-socialism, right? With a stated aim and objective and I think many people are kind of in the mass conversation trying to skirt that and just say we can do something different without shifting power, without shifting society, reorganizing society. That's not going to work, right? Fundamentally, I would argue with folks that's not going to work. Like, we have to be clear about where we're trying to go and then put it in a deeper context. I think, personally, I think we we do ourselves sometimes an injustice of just talking about it as, you know, climate change. We're in the midst of the sixth-grade extinction event right now, right? And, and they are related But they're not necessarily the same thing. And the the piece around the sixth extinction event, there's no fundamental argument that the way we've gone about, and I'm speaking we in a broad generic sense, the way capitalism has moved on the planet the last 200 years, human-directed action, has basically reduced life on this planet in the last 50 years in particular, has been extremely severe. And then now this while above, you know, the, the, the earth systems functioning in ways that nature can't keep up. Like, that's a whole different thing, and to me, where it became apparent to give you just an anecdote, like in Mississippi, some of the things that we've seen, and I've seen just in my own little garden and stuff, in my own, you know, yard, was a couple of years ago, I think it was like 2016, the roses bloomed in January, mm-hmm. right? They bloomed in January, and it's not typically supposed to happen to like, March. And what that meant was the cycle of, you know, the insects which survive off of the, the set of plants that we have. They didn't gestate early enough. And so then the birds came a couple of, you know, like in April, where their eggs laid, and half of the, the, the babies just in my yard, they starved to death, they died, because the cycle was just off. You know, one thing depended upon another thing, connected to another thing, and, and just that early bloom just threw everything off, just in the scope of my own yard, and that is very much directed to how we've built our cities, how we've done this massive suburbanization over the last seventy, eighty years, totally reduced, you know, all the the the, the various ecosystems in a constant pursuit of expansion, particularly the American version of how you build things out. For me, I think some of the things I've been talking about or trying to put in interjection and conversation of late, thinking that we're just going to have a better version of this, like a cleaner version of this is not going to work. Like there's going to have to be a reorganization on a massive scale that I don't even think we fully realize, like what would a new urban environment look like that was regenerative? You know, what would transportation look like on a national scale that was regenerative? You know, reduction in cars and transportation. How are we going to argue, particularly in this culture, with saying, look, we all need to get out of our cars, you know, more bikes, more public transportation? Most folks are going to read that as a restriction on their freedom. Right. Not an expansion of it, but a restriction of it. So there's a deeper way in which I think we have to create and, and have a real Political discussion and injecting of real politics, not just this policy pursuit of, you know, let's get more folks to, to turn out uh, for the elections to put a Democrat in office who then might put some policy proposals or some policy things in place that would tweak on the edges. Like, that's not going to cut it. So I'll end there. I think we want to just get into to more like dialogue back and forth with folks because I think Max Silik, like, a good framework. Out for us and just really kind of respond if you if you find with that. Open yeah, it up. yeah, definitely.
2: Uh, I would like you to expand a little bit more on AOC and what you're talking what you're talking about. Where she, I know she's sort of on the left of it, but uh, what what's your take on what she's putting out?
1: Well you mean, like her her policy things?
2: Yeah, the the Green New Deal as she's push as she's pushing it.
1: You want to touch on that or? I mean, I'll touch on, on some
0: of it, uh, but you can probably speak better about how that's been playing on the dynamics on the ground. But, uh, I mean, in the general sense, the proposal she put in place was, was very vague, but there were some specifics that we can point to that uh, should be troubling, right? She's talking about community-state business partnerships. She is. She is. I mean, and it's it's not being discussed very much, which speaks to uh, the role of the left media and whether or not it's educating or diseducating us, right? But a state business <coughs> partnership is not a left project for me. That is a different kind of project. And what a state business partnership means probably is the state pays the cost and the business gets the profits right. and the people get the get the scraps, right? And then you can she can talk about frontline communities, but if the actual skeletal or structural mechanism through which she wants to put in place includes the idea of state-business partnerships. That's not a left project. That's a project for governing capitalism. So, for me, that's a red flag. And for me, that's not what socialism is. And, I mean, for me, that makes it, you know, I think there's a problem to think about what Ocasio-Cortez is doing as socialism when she's talking about state-business partnerships. But I think Kelly's much better informed on how that's playing out.
1: And even that... Like, so, let's, You brought up one point that's also embedded in there earlier. Mm-hmm. You know, there's a very explicit platform around exporting green tech that was, that was very explicit in a, in, a, in a major component of the program that she put out. So you marry these two pieces together. You get a clear sense of, you know, this is just a rearticulation of the military-industrial complex just with a green focus, you know, just to put it in some historical context. That's what's being kind of proposed.
2: So she would not agree with eco-socialism as the, as the way you've articulated it?
1: I don't think even we've articulated it fully. I think we've said, like, these are the things that must include, but a deeper conversation of what are the actual social relationships that are necessary to make that happen? That's a deeper conversation that I think we have some outlines of, but I don't think we have a, a developed enough practice to say this is what it would need to be like, Right. So I think even that that's a gap on our side that we have to, to, to put up. Now in dialogue, she and some of the forces around her haven't necessarily been opposed, but they've tried to take a more I would say, you know, concession to a realistic option of you know, what forces of capital do we need to, to kinda rally to be on our side to form the the strongest political bloc that could get legislation passed. Like, that is morally approached, so there's been a a vagueness of stepping back once there was some, you know, kind of criticism and some some challenge, and they've been, basically with was a sunrise and and, uh, new consensus, and some of the folks have basically been on kind of like a listening tour that they've been orchestrating and planning out the last couple of months. It's still going on right now. Uh, I'm going up to Detroit, and I think about two weeks' time where there's supposed to be some... Peace around this is going on, and then you got groups like the Climate Mobilization that have been trying to work with with Bernie here. And I think on Tuesday they're launching kind of their campaign of calling calling for a national emergency to be declared around around climate, you know, which is also a part of this. And so some of the dialogue I think that people have with Bernie, one of the things that he made clear, which is why I don't think it's necessarily going to go too far, is that he wouldn't sign. He wouldn't sign on to anything if, I, if my understanding is correct. He wouldn't sign on to anything unless the AFL-CIO was going to sign off on it, yeah. right? And most of the AFL-CIO, particularly the, the sectors concentrated in and around energy, are very much opposed to the Green New Deal, in fact. So you, you get a real sense of the, the the mix of forces that she and then, you know, by a broader extension, we have to deal with on this piece where that – Just the basic old school elements of a just transition framework of saying we need to stop the petrochemical industry, protect those workers by, you know, retraining them and and moving them. Like, they're not even on that basic level of of the platform. We're just saying we should extend this and it should keep growing. There should be more fracking, you know. And if you look at, like, it's just the contradictions of how, you know, the AFL-CIO responded to, you know, what was going on up in the Dakotas, you know, with the pipeline. Yeah, Keystone Pipeline. I mean, took a terrible position on that, you know, fundamentally. So there's a posture that folks are trying to move them in a particular direction and get them on board as as a case study, get them on board as a player in the game of how the Green New Deal should be articulated. Far and above looking at, you know, groups on the ground in Jackson or New Orleans or here because they see the AFLCO as an institutional player with both resource and a political reach in a way that they don't see us. So the concession is going to be towards that, not towards what the science actually dictates and reality dictates that we need, right? That's not where, where she and, and they are at right now. So um, I want to sort of connect to this question about
2: about the state and businesses, and I, I'm actually kind of also responding to the AOC thing, and I agree that it's vague and, and that it's deliberately vague. And now that she's in Washington, you know, there's reasons for that, right? So at the same time, um, I, I think my, my question is if, if we're going to talk about an eco-socialist uh, green New Deal, and full disclosure, I'm, I'm going to be on the panel that uh, the Green Party, the New York Green Party, is organizing the budget for an eco-socialist. Green Deal. The view here is that there is some role for the in, the in the in the intermediate term between here and eco-socialism in the future, right? So if we're going to survive this juncture, I mean, you just said three years, which I agree. I mean, we're the the window for action here is very urgent, right? So if we're going to survive this crisis that we're in right now. I don't see how that can happen without some role for the state. And I also don't see how that can happen without markets, because we have a market economy. Right now, my version of socialism is worker-owned and controlled enterprises. That's how I would define socialism. I, you know, if, if you're not gonna produce, you know, if you if you, if you think you're gonna abolish the state and you're gonna abolish the markets, you know, then my question is, well, how do you organize production? I, I, don't, I don't know what the answer to that is, but in, in, in a three year time frame, we're not going to abolish the state, we're not going to abolish markets. So the question is what can be crafted in this historical context that can meet this crisis? And, and I'm wrapping up now. And, and I think that uh, what, what was big, what, what's going to be proposed in this other panel is $2 trillion a year of massive green public investment. Massive demilitarization of like three quarters of the, uh, of the war machine, plowing that into green investment. And that should be a kind of vision of what needs to happen. And, you know, if that gets a, if that gets co-opted by Elizabeth Warren in a watered down form, I'll be happy.
0: So I agree that, of course, there'll be a role realistically four states and markets in the coming three, four, five years in terms of stopping the most severe impacts of what will happen otherwise. That's clear. And it's you know 99% certain that's also going to occur through some form of politician, whether that be Elizabeth Warren or Ocasio-Cortez, who has a different vision of the world than most of the people in this room. That I agree with as well. What I think is very important, and of course I think the Green Party has really done a great job in putting forward progressive policy proposals concerning the ecological crisis, is to make sure that we understand that these forces are essentially not very sympathetic to the vision of the world that people have generally in this room. So to have a clear-eyed assessment of what those forces represent as we enter the battlefield of trying to... Push for the kind of world we wish to see, and so I think, and I think that there's a push to not clarify what those forces are in order to gather all the necessary support, essentially to defeat Trump. Right. So there's a push to water down or soften a critique of the funding behind most of these people, the vision of the world they have, the, the alliances they seek to say, okay, well, it's not a very big deal that Ocasio-Cortez doesn't want to attack the petroleum companies or it's not a big deal that she hasn't called for demilitarization when the military is like the second largest producer of greenhouse gas, never mind what the effects of all the mining it does on the overall ecology, right? There's a push to de-emphasize those critiques and the people pushing that are part of the kind of like para agenda or the para apparatus of the Democratic Party. And we need to be able to identify that if we want to gather an autonomous group or movement or force of any kind to push for an agenda, which will then, yes, be adopted in a modified and watered down form. But that's life. But we have to be able to move accurately on the battlefield.
1: So just in brief, I I disagree with part of that. The the last part of what you said, whether Elizabeth Warren, if she does some watered down version of it, then that's cool. I think that you know, there's a real politic that I hear you expressing. But look, I think if we don't swing for the fences on this, we're going to to miss the boat. Because there's a way in which we know the intersections of this have the necessarily transformative potential, even in the public's imagination, that's been missing for quite some time. And if we concede that we need to let various sectors of capital actually remain in place and, and, and kind of dictate the outcome of it, then we're going to lose out in the end. Just to clarify, I, I
2: think that we need to have an independent political force pushing for exactly what you're talking about. But just as, just as in the 1930s, it was the socialist and communist parties that pushed the Democrats to adopt the original Green New Deal, in the near term, that's the, that's the model.
1: And I reject that model. Okay. That that's my point. I reject that. I mean, I think we can look at that as a particular point in what FDR and those forces did was save capitalism. Is that what we want to repeat?
2: No, we just want to save the planet. That's that's what we're trying. But, to, that's what we're
1: talking about. Now. Right. But in order to do that, we're gonna to have to get rid of the the, you know, all the major corporations. I don't. I mean, a, a, a green Boeing is still Boeing running the show.
2: Right. I mean, one one of the things that we're proposing in the eco-socialist budget is to buy out fifty-one percent of the fossil fuel companies to be able to defang them to prevent them from being able to, you know,
1: uh, stop. I'm, and I'm pushing us to to, to to so I heard that and I read some of that right. I, I, we need to push deeper okay, cool. on that because there's a there's a I think there's a limitation in our own imaginations that we concede the we keep conceding power to the corporations as the, the being the only vehicle who could execute anything on a mass scale. And it's still removing us from the equation of how do we actually empower people and build the, the necessary force on a productive level, not just on the level of we have some coalition politics which elects this, elects that. We got to think deeper than that. Okay. Right? That's, that's what I'm pushing. Uh,
3: two questions uh, they're connected Uh, so first uh, how do you envision bringing in uh, global uh, the communities in global south uh, to whatever we are shaping here Uh, and uh, second uh, you mentioned scaling up and federating out I wonder how that would connect to building international networks
0: there's kind of two separate ways to to address the question of inclusion of communities in the global south in terms of how we think about an actual people's green new deal i mean first of all there's the question of actual political instruments like we need an international and it's not news that the u.s left is not in a condition to enter into an international but nevertheless that should be the aspiration right which also means to have uh, you know there's kind of a revival of Kautskyism at the moment and so this is kind of pushing against an internationalist politics. We need to be very clear that when we think about politics here, in all ways, shape, and forms, it should be oriented both towards a horizon that includes everybody or all the working peoples of the world, and that actually actively seeks to think about what concrete steps can be taken to to build out from where we are to building those links. So, I mean, to be a little more concrete, you now see people actually discussing biofuels, right? And this is part of the displacement of the discussion from politics in terms of the constitution of building a collective political subject that's internationalist or policy. And people are like, well, biofuels, that could be a good idea. But actually policy is in that sense already deciding what the politics are. Because if you're saying, okay, well, maybe the biofuels are an okay idea, you're actually saying we don't want to work with Via Campesina. You're saying we don't want to work with the most significant peasant movements Organized on every single continent of the world and that, are that have the most organized working people in the countryside and the small peasants of the entire planet because they have a very clear position against biofuels, right? So, you know, what that can mean concretely is, of course, bringing people, if there are forums about the Green New Deal and communities to say, okay, why don't we have someone from Via Campesina? They're not talking about a Green New Deal, but they've been talking about using smallholder agroecology to cool the planet for at least 10 years, right? So why aren't they at the table when there's a discussion about the Green New Deal? Okay, then there's already been, there may very well have already been a decision to exclude them from the political horizon, right? Mm-hmm. So I think that plays out locally or organizationally in a lot of different ways, but in the broadest sense, it's about making sure that any specific discussion isn't already excluding the Global South from its vision.
1: Yeah, I the don't, I don't only thing I would really add to that is I find that it- those of us in the US, Canada, Europe, our organization is far behind where the organization is in the Global South, know, on the political level. So there is some organizing work that we have to do. And I think the challenge is, is how do we do that in a way which puts the international politics at the forefront and not become just some another US-centered trip or European-centered focus trip. <laughs> that's going to be a major challenge that we have to figure out in the here and now.
4: I agree with Colleen's riff on Rosa Luxemburg's socialism or barbarism is socialism or extinction now, and I think it's an accurate thing. But I don't think his points are that invalid either. And you sort of went to it when you talked about how, well, they think that, you know, our freedom is going to be violated if we implement parts of the Green New Deal. I don't think the authors of the Green New Deal, as articulated by the wings of the Progressive Democrats, so called progressive Democrats, have thought that through very much because the Trumponian advisors in the White House, in the West Wing of the White House, have picked up on some of the, not the Green New Deal itself, but what they went into was AOC's commentary on it, where they said, well, we're going to ban cows. Well, you know, that's part of the talk around this question. I'm a big defender of cows myself, I love cows. And this idea that you're not going to eat a hamburger anymore and something's going to be used against and has, is being used now. And it goes to a bigger question about development and de-development. And, you know, when you talk about the Breakthrough Institute, which I actually think is an American institution, not an Australian one, there's two. There's, the, there's two. That's oh, why it's fine. I'm familiar. I actually know many of the people in the Eco-Modernist Fund, which is the one here in the United States, yeah, which yeah. is another question. But it does raise the issue of, you know, Colin, would you say it's not going to be a better now? Better this. I actually don't agree with you because I think that if we don't have a better, one, if if, if the, the reason the global south is outputting from increasing amounts of CO2 is because they're trying to electrify their societies. Because right now renewable energy in Ghana means cow dung burning down your forest to a charcoal. That's renewable energy there. In India, burning cow dung is uh, kills 30,000 people a year from asphyxiation. Almost all of them women and children. So. Forms of development need to be discussed. You know, it's, I used this, used to talk here on this, in, in this forum years ago. When I said, you know, it's it's not about having a big screen TV. It's not about a sub-zero, fancy gourmet refrigerator. It's like a half-height refrigerator so your food doesn't spoil. It means the most ubiquitous thing in the world for us is that light switch, that you don't even think about. It. Well, a billion people don't have a light switch. They want to have a light switch, and they're pushing their leaders to get those light switches. The leaders are installing huge amounts of coal energy, for instance, and in CO two producing uh, forms of output, and that has to be that can't necessarily be replaced with renewable energy. And it's and this is one of the things what we have to talk about because in the global south, the things that many of those people don't like, who say aren't in via Though I agree with their perspective to a large degree, um, is stop telling us to be poor. And we have to have an answer for that internationally. Because if, if one acts like the World Wildlife Federation, which is Malthusian, quite honestly, and some of the larger established <coughs> NGOs that, that legitimately try to defend wildlife and rural ways of life, it means it, it's adopting a Kipling, the noble, you know, poor person, which I think we have to be very clear on that we're for an increase of standard of living in a way that's ecologically attainable. Mm-hmm. And that's what can save the planet. You know, let me just, I'll, I'll end with this. Helen Caldecott, who I can't stand personally because I think she's factually so inaccurate on so many things, says, there's nothing wrong, we don't want to recycle. <coughs> because recycling uses energy. And energy is the enemy. And that's a quote. And she says, there's nothing wrong with reading by candlelight. We did it for 200 years. We have to reject that aspect of it and come up with real human alternatives. And I think we need to make that transition <coughs> to what you're talking about, which is getting rid of imperialism, quite honestly, and commodity capitalism with some form of a program. I don't have it, but I'm, with that, that addresses those issues.
1: My main thing is, and I like how you, you went there, is that we aren't utilizing our imagination Enough in movement building, and we stick. To my my opposition is not so much that that's not that is a reality that we're gonna have to confront, but is it one that we should orient our politics to? See, I think the way Max framed it, like if if you start off with like, you know, we're just gonna build more electrical, you know, access. You know, and and that's a way we're going to try to do it in some clean way throughout the world. All right, that limits my politics. I don't have to change many social relationships to do that. Right? So that's the deeper piece of what I'm saying. We don't have to change much. Because you can, get, you can come up with a very paternalistic program wherein, let's say, Bernie wins and he wants to electrify the world by getting all the U.S. companies... To go figure out a way to do electricity cheap in Ghana, I'm like that. Since you know, uh, you, you mentioned it. we we can figure out some way and finance it through debt that'll keep Ghana, you know, in the you know in the U.S. back pocket for the next 200 years, right? That's a program they could easily come up with very quickly in some benevolent way. So is that what we want to articulate? right we like you have a situation in Greece or Greece basically now it's going to be in the back pocket of Germany's to what through the 2050s by their own admission of the deal the that they just signed End of the right like is that what we want like so if we don't use our imagination we we wind up engaging in, in what i call concessionary politics from the very beginning of our thinking Right, I'm going to concede that I can't win, so let me get the best deal I can get out of the situation and then put off the, the, the real transformation further on down the line. But there's some deeper questions I think we do have to, to look at. So, yeah, I don't, I don't think it should be, for me, I'm not trying to subscribe anybody to a candlelight future. But I do think that there's a, the, the, a piece that we have to recognize. Is that if we keep doing what we're doing now, we're going to be living in a world of plastic that's associated with having that small refrigerator Steel. That's not sustainable. So something different is going to have to be worked out in a way that it can't be more concrete and steel as the means of improving the overall quality of life. There has to be a different way of integrating ourselves back into the natural environment that I don't think we're thinking about enough, except that like sometimes people want to joke like you want to be a hippie. I'm like, no, I ain't talking about that either. But I think there are some ways in which we have to look at the very nature of what we've produced in the last couple of years is toxic in the long term. Utilizing chemicals and chemistry and the way that we use it to build this civilization is fundamentally toxic to the earth and breaks down natural systems. So we have to do a deeper level of reintegration, is what I mean, and not just think we're going to have a bunch of this. Now That doesn't mean to me in my imagination that the quality of life goes down by, by by means of health indicators or access to certain material services and goods. Like, I think that could actually increase, right? But it requires a different orientation to is the quality of life being able to access cable TV or is quality of life being able to access all of you in organic social relationships? Which one is it? That's what I'm articulating. Which one is it? Because the easiest route is reproduce. You know, what people have in mind and as, as an aspiration is, I want to get to where America is. And I was, you know, telling certain comrades internationally, like, I don't, know, I don't know if you want that. Because the way some of this has been built actually individualizes society, but we don't even get together, we don't socialize together, we don't mingle together. That's not the articulation of, of being a human that, that, that I think we all eventually want to aspire to. I think it's also important that we
0: keep in mind, I mean, first, of course, I fundamentally agree that like a a project, we have to control industrialization. We have to not eliminate it, but it has to be controlled and it has to be structured in such a way that there's convergence. So everyone on the planet fundamentally deserves the same level of industrialization. And we have to decide what kind of things we do and don't need in terms of industry. I mean, medical care, actually a lot of medical care is superfluous and a lot of it is bad, but there are certain things that... We don't know how to make in non-industrial ways. And, okay, we agree that medical care is fundamental. This chair is made of metal, even though you can make chairs of wood in a sustainable way that's carbon-absorbing. I mean, this is just something very straightforward, right, that is structured in such a way that we've been presented say that this is what modernity looks like and this is what development looks like. Power, everyone deserves power. But I don't think we should say that the forms of development that have occurred so far in the global south and that actually generally elites have structured – as the horizon that people should aspire to that those are actually what development is. I mean, I work actually directly on um, the project of development and food sovereignty in Tunisia, right? And a fundamental problem, a fundamental obstacle, including in Tunisia is convincing people, including people in the cities that there is no developmental path that doesn't rely on restorative agriculture. It can't happen. And in fact, they're running out of water. The whole country is dying, right? Because of the path of development that was put in place since the 1950s and the 1960s, primarily by the United States. And so they put in tens of millions of dollars and putting in these huge hydroelectric dams that supposedly give them electricity, even though there still isn't enough electricity, that supposedly give them irrigation water, even though there's ways of producing irrigation in the countryside that don't rely on using any power and that rely on entirely renewable materials. So we need to, I mean, I think this goes back to what Kelly is saying, (coughs) that there needs to be a discussion about what are the ecological effects of given technologies, and how can that be thought of on a global basis right. without thinking, okay, we need to put people give people candles. No, we need to decide where and when we can use industry and when we're willing to let it go, because you know now our bodies are probably 10 percent plastic like that's not a, okay, but that was never presented to us as a choice. choice. That it's was right. kind of presented to us as, okay, this is modernity, take it or leave it uh, and take it you know I think there's a, a very big discussion about what development looks like. And I think that's actually been one of the really good things about some of the discussion that the Green New Deal has provoked alongside a lot of like the unrealistic discussion that's focused on mustering votes for the Democratic candidate. I think there's a good discussion about what are forms of technology, including here in the U.S., that are appropriate for people. And I think also, you know, and all of that contains the politics, including banning cows and hamburgers, which is also bad. I mean, we want restorative ranching on board, to restore the soil with the Green New Deal. And so when people in these think tanks are talking about artificial meat, they're actually alienating these people who could be brought on board with a Green New Deal coalition, a People's Green New Deal coalition, based on actually restoring the grasslands of the entire western half of the country using restorative agriculture. That's not even part of the discussion because there's a technocratic discussion top-down about policy that is reflecting the interest of a very narrow set of people, articulating a very narrow worldview. And I think that also is similar in the Global South, unfortunately, at the current moment, and that's because uh, certain voices aren't at the table, including via Kempisina.
3: So uh, I've spent most of my life building a traditional labor movement. I'm from Vermont, too, so I do know Bernie Sanders. Uh, but building the traditional labor movement uh, and being a quiet socialist. And you know, I find these times both terrifying and exciting, right? Seventy percent of people want a green deal. That's news to me. I'm very surprised by it. The majority of young people are opposed to socialism. Maybe socialism. But, like we have a tremendous opportunity here. We're setting aside electoral politics, are there like intermediate steps or projects that you all think are exciting that are going on? Ways that. Uh, to, like, engage folks who don't necessarily call themselves socialists, right, to, to build towards that. So, like, what's the intermediate step? And what do you all, like, just a couple examples, like, moving mass organizations towards this kind of uh, uh, politics.
1: The list of things that I would point you to is pretty, pretty big. <laughs> I mean, stuff here in New York, you know, some of the stuff we're talking about. With many people, you know, in some of the circles I run are calling, you know, Afroecology projects in Cleveland, projects in Detroit, you know, some of the, the, the work that we are, are now, you know, kind of deeply involved in are all things I think that that speak to people being political subjects and acting in, in, in the real world of saying, hey, we got to start here. Now I think there's I, I'm not one who agrees with this line that, you know, farming is the most revolutionary thing that you can do, but that line is out there. You know, I can understand in part where it's where it's germinated from, but so <clears throat> there's a ton of work that's going on. Like, the level of experimentation in the here and now, is, I don't think is our problem. Like, I think our problem is how do we all connect and, and form the, the political strength that we need to exercise a greater social force, you know, and engage in real politics in society. That piece is missing. But, you know, almost every city, I mean, there's like 10 to 15 between the co-op work, the urban agriculture work, the housing struggle work that's going on here in, in New York. You know, there's a ton of work that's going on here. But I'm often amazed even coming when I come to New York, this group doesn't know about this other group or they're not connected to each other's work in any you know, concrete way and not thinking, I think, about, well, how do we start from here to envisioning a, a, a way in which we can build the political strength to have first an impact, but then maybe re-articulate what New York City is. Right? So it's that space, it's that organizing that I think is missing that is the intermediate step that I think that we need to take from from the experimentation that's going on to, to building. What I meant by scaling up, I meant organizing. I don't mean some massive new factory or something like that. I mean organizing concrete people to say, okay, this is how we're going to connect. This is how we're going to resource each other's work so we break a certain dependency on Finance in the form of philanthropy. Like, how do we do all of that in a, in a particular way? That's the big piece that I think is missing right now. I think there's, of course, education. But with it, I think there has to be some organization. Uh, and I think some of the motion that you're discussing is, is, at least in this country, is going to run into some some hard lessons and contradictions real quick. And so what do I I mean by that? So I I live in Mississippi, which is controlled by the Tea Party. I wouldn't, you know, just call it the Republican Party. It's the Tea Party in the Republican (laughs) dress that runs the state that I live in. Now, why do I bring this up? Because by next April, when our, our next legislative session ends, they are going to basically cut off and make mass protests illegal. And it's, it won't be the last state to, to do that. Like that's, a, you know, policies that have been progressively sneaking through states and cities all across the country since, you know, Black Lives Matter kind of picked up off the, the Picatero piece of blocking the highways. And then what happened to Keystone? Like, this has been creeping up. And then Trump. Just recently said that that he wanted to put some national legislation that would ban or put some major serious prison time on folks who protest, you know, pipeline extraction and development. Now, in most, at least on the state level, there's about 30 states which have the supermajorities set in place to make this law. That's something we need to to realize. And so the game, the struggle, is going to take some immediate. Shifts and what I was saying the part part this about the three years, like the right is already advancing to a place that for us to take definitive action to save ourselves is going to be taking place in the context of our actions are going to be technically illegal. And are we as a movement are we prepared for that? See, that's what I'm saying. So a little bit more than education, like you got to educate people to the fact that. This is how the right is moving to to take preventative measures so that they kind of remain in power and, and, and there's no legal, democratic, liberal way of, of affecting change. But if so our survival is going to basically mitigate it at some point that we're gonna to have to go beyond that. Right? We're gonna to have to go beyond the mere protest, because that will, you know, just being out in the street against a pipeline might land you ten years in jail already in some states. Right? So there's a level of the here and now and the immediacy of we better open up our imaginations to think about social relationships and power very quickly because they are constricting the, 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 the playground as it exists, the battlefield as it exists. And if we're going to move, we better be prepared, at least in this country. And I think this is going on all, you know, I'm not think I know in, in Europe, different countries in Europe, they're doing the same thing. You know, Macron is putting forth. Laws mirrored on the laws here, and I think in Hungary, that are specifically targeting yellow vest movements to say that you know this type of protest is illegal. So we need to put that. I'm registering as as the element of real politics. We are going to have to deal with that, and to recognize this is why I was pushing back, having to recognize that they could make certain concessions, right towards. Hey, if y'all if y'all go and we can work with the corporations and we can work with the politicians to set certain targets to change a few things and tweak, but nothing else remains the same. You can have a version of what gets passed, which could literally coexist with the repressive apparatus that they put in place. I mean, I think we really need to think about that and grapple with it. Those two things, the way it's what's being proposed now and you can't protest against a pipeline, or you can't protest to have more recycling or renewable energy in your town, those two things can coexist. That's a form of fascism, too. It's exactly what it is. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> there was a question over here.
5: Uh, thank you guys, first off, for coming in here. I always feel revitalized when I get in the midst of these types of conversations, but ultimately all of us believe here will return to our communities. minds blue-collar, mixed with a uh, rather wealthy liberal elite, and I'm finding it very difficult to find ways to connect these people that have any kind of mobility. We have a local Green Party consistently gets about one or two percent of the vote. Do you see any existing vehicles for this type of these people to think about different things? I know you mentioned imagination. Going to the schools, it's about compliance, obedience. I don't find a lot in the form of imagination that would force kids to be somewhat. Um, uh, think with dissent because uh, we're gonna leave here and I and again I, it's, it's the same same thing every year and I'll, I'll go with my third party friends and whatnot but I'm not seeing the traction uh, we'll elect our Democratic congressman who will grab his feet and uh, and I'll come back next year and I'll hope things have improved what do you what do you suggest what vehicles are working to make these changes uh, come cause this someone over here mentioned something about the 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 uh, slow change versus quicker change I can't use
1: slow change I think in some respects mass consciousness far exceeds the level of being, or being of, of having vehicles to execute where that consciousness is right so like you, know, you cited about 70% of the people polled at least
0: yeah or the Democratic voters
1: are the people right. I, don't, I don't remember which um, you know believe in like the Green New Deal or some they would be supportive of it that far exceeds the actual organization to, to put it in place, right? But will
5: they endorse a Green New Deal that doesn't have a capitalist logic to it?
1: Be- I think most would if, if, the, if the option was actually presented. Yeah, I think most would. And I think if people kind of understood, you know, that gets back to in part to some of the education work, I think it would. Look, I, I mean, in short, this is what I see in, in my work and what I argue for half the people who live in this country who are voting age and have voting access, which everybody don't, people choose not to, to engage. I don't think that's pure apathy. I think most people are like, why am I going to vote for the same old shit over and over and over again? Whoever I vote, they're going to do pretty much kind of the same damn thing. And most people, I think, are keenly aware of, of, of that at this point. If we can construct a, a real option right? A real viable option, I think people will move. So again, to me, I just put out that, that the tried and true things around organizing, you know, meeting people, figuring out what they want, what they desire, what skills they have, what level of coming together that they're willing to execute together and then, and then act upon that. Like that tried and true, that hasn't changed and won't change, I don't think, in, in, in the future. And we're going to have to, I think, really get down and dirty on that. But I think the piece is, what's the vision and what's the program? And if it keeps up being a mirror, or conceding to certain compromises, most folks are not going to go with that, right? This is like we we know where that's ultimately going to lead, and and it really don't have much room or space for me in it. And I think you know, look, there's some qualitative shifts that that are happening. I mean, let's be real. I mean, I, I hear part of what you're saying, but but let, like in 2004, you know, if you would have asked me in 2004, would something like Occupy exist? I would have laughed at you. And how quickly that changed public conversation and public consciousness to us to a certain extent, to where now we're still not having a direct conversation about class, but at least there's a conversation about inequality that didn't exist. In the '90s, that, that we weren't having, then there's been social action and movement on the backs of that. So things are changing. I think sometimes we like the grinding work of just doing stuff in tens and twenties. I don't think we often see the qualitative aspect of it that you're having the impact amongst more folks who just ain't gonna come to the meeting, but they are actually listening, you know, engaging and learning over a course of time. And then, they, and then, folks, I think. When their time, capacity, interest coincide, they will move. I think that's what we've seen, you know, on all of these different issues, you know, over over the the period. I think it's us getting beyond the pessimism of the present moment around how apparently ineffective and like not our perception that we don't have a certain amount of power. I think that is a trapping of our own minds, actually, to a certain extent. Uh, And we got to break out of that.
6: Two thoughts. One is, several years ago, a commercial building in New Jersey was the first net zero commercial building in the country. Or whatever. Only electric, not other forms of energy, but electric, right? Because they put solar panels on the roof. And when it was first laid out, it was not designed to be a net zero building. But what the uh, owners of the company, the building, did was they even built their own monitoring system and they put it in like the lobby of the the building. And so every employee who came and went saw that. And after a short period of time, once the building uh, went solar, it was actually a net zero building because the employees looked at the monitor and related that to what they did during the day, and it then became a net zero building. Mm -hmm. I think that some of these things, like discussions about supporting the Green New Deal, if it is or whatever, I view this as you got to you know, kick the chop out from under the wheel so the cart can start moving. Once the cart's moving, a lot of other things become possible. I take a lot of your points. I'm just saying that until the cart starts moving, nothing's going to happen.
0: I think the car. First, I think the car is moving, right? So. The car is moving, but the question is, like, can it fit everybody? There's a lot of other questions, right? I mean, mask, the, the car, which we can think of as mass consciousness. I mean, Kelly's just been talking about it a lot. It's moving. People are ready. I mean, uh, you know, most young people are like, okay, why well, have a planet to grow up in, to grow old in. I mean, this is, like, an immediate question in front right. of, well, there aren't that many young people here, but, like, in fact, you know, this is, uh, it, it's clear. So the car is moving. The question is, is what is the political organization to do? to articulate that in the necessary way. I mean, is the car gonna move fast enough to get away from the petrodollar? I mean, is the U.S. looking like it's gonna accept to go down gracefully in its control over the Middle East? Are the petroleum companies gonna let go gracefully? I mean, this is the basis of U.S. capacity to spend the U.S. consumer of last resort is the fact that the U.S. is able to issue bonds that people and people need the dollar as the you know, currency of exchange on world markets and so forth. The U.S. is not going to let go of that very easily. and That's very much what Trump represents. Mm-hmm. But really, most, a lot of the Democrats represent as well, although some are thinking about other options. That's not going to be let go easily, and it's also not going to be let go. Furthermore, when there's no relationship between anti-war organizing and the environmental movement, and when anti-war organizing is actively demonized. Right. If you want to move against the wars in the Middle East, you need to actually understand that we are at war and that those wars need to stop. Right. But in the current context, if you talk too much about the war in the Middle East, someone will think, OK, you are a supporter of the Mullahs in Iran or you are a supporter of you know, Bashar. You're like, no, I just don't want to send U.S. weapons over there. That's it. That's my position. It's not more than that. And people, there's a lot of flack fired at one's position if one takes that position, which is very much related to what you're talking about. Like, we can't get rid of the petrodollar without actually the withdrawal of U.S. forces from the region and the withdrawal of U.S. proxies from the region. I mean, I think that's very important. I agree in part with what you're saying about uh, more democratic forms of energy. I mean, and it's something I've looked at a lot for Tunisia. You know, there's a lot of proposals for using dispersed forms of solar energy and using kind of artisanal manufacturing technologies to gather them and... I think that's very important for countries in the Global South when they're choosing developmental paths. But I also think that that is the next field of battle, right? The next field of battle is who will benefit from a clean energy transition. So you have Warren, you have China and forces within China have different aspirations for their own society. Some of them are like, OK, China's going to use this opportunity to become the world leader in exporting clean tech based on the kind of mineral deposits that China has. And the U.S. is like, okay, well, we're not letting China take our place, so there's going to be a war over that issue, which again brings us back to the question of militarization, right? So I just think, you know, I don't think we can rely on technology to do our work for us in terms of shifting the social relations.
1: We're, the fact that we even having this conversation is, is evidence that it's moving, right? And, and for me, what I've at least tried to make clear from the beginning, I applaud, you know, bring it, make it practical. I applaud AOC for what she's trying to do. You know, she wasn't even sitting in the seat before she started introducing that. That's that's a major political risk within that framework that she took. And I think that she needs to be supported in doing that. So I can offer support and at the same time push you. Like, no, this this piece, ain't that ain't going to work. I want you to keep talking about this, but I'm gonna keep struggling with you over and around how this is articulated, where it's framed to go. That's, I think, the broader perspective of, of, of at least I'm gonna speak for myself of what I've been pushing from the beginning. So it's not like I ain't trying to, you know, deconstruct. You. <laughs> a, I'm gonna speak to the to the understanding of history that we know certain paths are, are not going to lead to everybody being included. And if we don't speak to that, then it's actually a fault of ours, not hers. So, you know, that's where it's at. I I think it's moving. I think it's a a step in the right direction. We just need to make sure that it it drives a little bit further than than the previous efforts at some this deal, that, this deal, this before. Let's learn the lessons of the limitation of of all those deals and figure out how do we go further. In that context, maybe this has
0: been addressed. You've already addressed this before, but you've got plans from... People like Elizabeth Warren, which are actually to the right of the Green New Deal. She's talking about green militarization. <laughs> She's talking about a specifically export-driven plan, which ironically leads us into the problems of mid-century American capitalism, when we don't even have the uh, global economic framework. You know, the capital was completely destroyed during World War II. The United States had this. Um, primary position that it simply doesn't have anymore. How do we deal with that? Should we be uh, attacking it directly? Are there more subtle ways in which we can articulate how this sort of liberal vision is completely inadequate? Yeah, I think that those policies need to be attacked head on, right? Demilitarization and uh, ecological restoration have to go hand in hand. I mean, for so many reasons, both because of the raw requirements and also, of course, the imperialist system that the militarization both ensures and reproduces, right? So I don't think we can let that pass in the least. I think actually precisely it brings up the very contradictions that we're trying to address, right? It brings up that this social bloc she's trying to represent is arguing for a continued U.S. imperialism based on industrial export, and that is exactly the world we oppose. So I think we need to address that directly. I mean, I think the fact that she is forced, that this is the specific way she's crafting her policy package speaks to how the card is moving, speaks to how issues need to be framed in terms of climate going forward on the liberal left spectrum, right? We're going to see a lot of reformulation of policies that incorporate the critique of the ecological effects of the current system while also saying, okay, we basically need to keep the social structures intact, which is why we see a lot of emphasis on basically a technological approach to climate change or even a technological approach to eco-socialism, where people are like, okay, we're going to do asteroid mining for, for eco-socialism. Right? So there's a lot of ways that the, the issues are, are being avoided, and I think it's important to be able to critique those while at the same time putting forward our own positive vision.
3: I wonder since uh, Operation Jackson has engaged both in building alternatives uh, right here here now and uh, participating in the electoral politics. I wonder what you think about like, finding a balance uh, between doing something locally and at the same time trying to mobilize the movement or build a force that would push for more radical changes from like political forces ruining power. Well,
1: it's a question of what lessons you learn too, mm-hmm. and I would say that we have been more implicated in electoral politics from being part of a strategy but where where electoral politics is at in in our context locally right now is pretty reactionary actually we're talking about on the municipal level so i think we have to rearticulate like how how we want to be even involved on that level very fundamentally cuz clearly the way things are going on the municipal level now is not things that we support. So there's some, there's some lessons that I think we have to really look and interrogate and come to some consensus on how did that that division of kind of labor as, you know what it was supposed to be. So for folks who don't know look, what I'm talking about, so there's a Jackson-Cush plan that, that we come out of. And theoretically there was supposed to be kind of a threefold division of labor. Some folks who were focused on concentrating on on building uh, dual power through the through people's assembly. Another group of folks that was supposed to be focused primarily on, on building an independent electoral politics and then work around developing and advancing the solidarity economy. So cooperation Jackson falls solidly within that third one. And unfortunately the first one, really, right now, I would argue, it fundamentally doesn't exist. Like, there really isn't an independent kind of articulation around building a People's Assembly in the here and now. And then the electoral politics is gone, in, in my personal view, fundamentally awry. So there's, there's some things that I think we need to, as individuals, as, as organizations, I think, really reflect on our own practice the last 10 years, to figure out what could have been done better and going forward, you know, what's the the way forward. So, you know, one thing that I, I personally am working on, we, you know, we have to create more time and space to talk about some things going forward, you know, in Cooperation Jackson. And I think we're just, I don't know if Brandon's another member of Co-Court and I don't know if he would agree, because a lot of the time we just don't have enough time in in the daily grind to sit down and talk about a lot of things strategically. But we've come out of a very, I think we're kind of at the tail end of a very of intense period that I would call nothing short of like a civil war that was going on in in Jackson. And I think we've kind of, to a certain extent took some right decisions to step out of certain, certain parts of that and let them just do it. You know, let them do what they're going to do. And we have to go deeper and perfect what we do. And, our work was suffering from trying to be two different things when we had barely had the capacity to do one. But I still think that we need to have a rearticulation of what protagonist governance looks like. And what I mean by that, so some folks have taken my comments to mean that some of the things I've, I've said, because it's you know often incomplete statements or a little half quote from something here or there for whatever my personal views you know have weight in the social movement right now, To say that my arguments are saying I'm totally against electoral politics, I'm like, actually, that's not the case. That's not what I'm arguing for. I'm arguing for that the left needs to be much more clear about what it does engage and when it does engage in anything, but electoral politics in particular. And that if our forces, at least on, say, like a municipal or state level, if we're not there to really push what I call a protagonistic form of governance, and what I mean by protagonists is, you enter into that force to heighten the contradictions in the interests of the working class and the oppressed, not to make compromises with capital, or not think that you're there to manage the contradictions of capitalism, which can't be managed, right? So, the, But if we don't enter into that space and make it practical, and what does that mean, practical? If you want to enter that space and really push your politics, you're only going to be there four years, at least in the current dynamic. And you should walk in there understanding, I'm going to push this hard with the expectation that I'm probably not going to be here four years, but that's the point, right, that I'm going to try to push the envelope and move it to such a degree that either I'm working my way out of office because the office won't be necessary or, you know, I've heightened the contradictions to a certain point. I've moved and moved into another need and I won't be here or I get voted out because folks don't like it. But I think that, you know, for me on the deeper this, this experience that we've had the last 10 years, we did a number of things prematurely. And I think getting into electoral politics was one of them. So it's one of the things I think, you know, Jackson and us have kind of been noted for. We, we did this amazing electoral victory. I'm like, y'all not living with the consequences of that victory in the same way that we are. Mm-hmm. And the consequences of that victory is has been a whole bunch of black people that have been killed by by folks under the authority of folks who I once called comrades. Mm-hmm. And I spent a lifetime literally fighting against police terror, you know, as a, as a basis of my political project now, I'm, I'm confronted with my comrades being in charge of the folks who are executing that that's a profound head mm-hmm. you know uh, uh, in a certain certain sense but what do we learn from that and then how do we articulate the folks to be like I think we've done some good work <laughs> I think we could have could have done better but there's certain there's certain aspects of the logic that I think that we thought our we thought our way out of or at least that was what was implied but we actually didn't and I think that there's ways in which why what what I was pushing on the comrade earlier like look, we got to broaden our imagination and I'm, I'm saying I was articulating that just to be clear from the concrete experience that I think I have of saying there were certain assumptions that were embedded in some of the thinking around where this society is and by what rules and, and norms it operates on but we didn't look about internally how we have have accommodated ourselves to to those limitations as organizations and as individuals. And I've seen time and time again, well, we need to compromise here because this is what's possible to do. Well, I didn't come here to do what was possible within the confines of the system. I thought we agreed that we were going to do everything possible to, to shatter this, to destroy this, to move beyond that, not accommodate ourselves to it time and time again. So I think there's there's some deeper learning on this that I think we have to look at in the, in the hearing now. But the only thing, I would, I'll end with this. We are not having enough serious engagement, in my view, around how do we actually build strong social movements. And that that should be in the lead of whatever we, we're trying to do as the real transformative power, not trying to put electoral politics and politicians as the leading force in what happens. Like, that's the wrong end. And, you know, as Max had brought up, like, are we having a conversation about politics or are we having a conversation about policy? And to a certain extent in this country, right now, any conversation about electoral politics is really a conversation about policy. I was joking with somebody last night, but I was dead serious. You know, they were asking me about what do I, did I watch the debate with uh, Kamala Harris and somebody else? And I said, no, I didn't watch it. You know, I've I read some things. Said, well, why, you know, you're a political beast. Why why didn't you watch it? I said, look, let, let, me, let me be honest with you. Let me be honest with you. All they're talking about is how to manage the empire. I don't want to be in the empire. So to a certain extent, they got, they got no bearing on me other than I just need to watch, let's say, if, so if Kamala Harris wins, this is the shit I need to be prepared for that she's going to try to execute and enforce upon me. To that extent, I'm watching the monitor. But whether she's there or Bernie is there, whatever, the empire is the empire. But that ain't gonna change. So it's like what my focus is, I'm not, you, you know, that's the job requirement. You know, that, that's what you, when you sign up for that role, that's what you sign up for. So I'm like, I'm not really focusing on that other than, you know, are they gonna you know, shoot me in the head or shoot me in the, in the stomach? You know, what, what, which one are they aiming for? That's the real concrete difference between them. You know, like, are you going to starve me or are you going to put me in prison? You know, like, which which one of these two strategies are you going to employ?
4: I live in a I Each one of the members of my family have an automobile. We don't have a good, serious public transportation. But even if we did, jumping that cultural hurdle to take a bus or a train to go shopping, is bigger than people think. And so when we say we're going to reduce bills, which I'm 100% favor of, and at this point, almost by any means necessary, there's a political consequence for that for those who are advocating. And you just have to be aware of this and learn how to fit that into one's you know, plan that we put forward on how to get from here to a, to a solidarity economy, if you want to use that um, expression. Um, it's a euphemism for socialism.
0: Yeah, I mean, I think that's very important, and I think this is how we can read a lot of the literature and the plans that are coming out saying, okay, we can maintain the existing technology and just swap in new batteries. People are basically saying we don't want to do the hard work. On the first, in the first case, I'm engaging with people and saying, okay, things are going to have to change, and that's okay, and let's have a discussion about what that looks like in order to have a liv- livable planet, right? Like, that's what politics is, and people are like, no, forget it. Let's just have a policy. Right, That's the first case. But I think the other thing that's also important to keep in mind is why that's able to happen. right? And that's able to happen because (coughs) where are the batteries for the cars going to come from? That's going to come from China. And that's going to come from Chile and the Southern Cone and the Congo. And why are the prices of those metals cheap is because all those countries have been destroyed by the U.S. so they can't raise the prices of the metals. So, of course, there's a whole imperialist system that makes it so that we can (coughs) imagine – And that the planners can imagine, and the the bad planners, the technocratic planners, can imagine saying, okay, we're just going to swap in the batteries, right? So all of that needs to be brought into the conversation so we can approach people and say, okay, these issues are all connected. If you want an ecological planet and you want an anti-imperialist planet, we're going to have to also talk about planning. And these are the ways, this is the nexus of why all those conversations are actually part of the same conversation. Um, and it's part of being aware of that and also being aware of the forces that are saying, no, let's cleave everything apart into its own silo, and we're only going to deal with it one way. And what that actually means is maintaining imperialism, and everything's going to be at the cost of the global south,
1: just so that you can drive around the suburbs. <coughs> mm-hmm. So y'all, y'all all ready to go do some, some more deeper organizing, right? <laughs> That's what we all walking away with. All right, well, thank y'all for coming. all yeah, right Hopefully was good.